Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, I talk to my colleague, J.R. Gilhooley, author of 40 Questions on Angels, Demons, and Spiritual Warfare about that very topic. Lay people, pastors, scholars alike all have questions about angels and demons, about Satan, the fall of Satan, how demons and angels interact with us in this world, what are they, what's their purpose, And so I thought this would be an interesting conversation to clear up just some basic foundations of what the Bible says about that and how we can think about it theologically and practically. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with JR. As always, we are brought to you by B&H Academic. You can go to bhacademic.com to find out about all of their latest offerings. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. And now my conversation with J.R. Gilhooley, but first, as always, no big deal. J.R. Gilhooley, we uh, are doing the best we can to be completely against incarnational relationships during the pandemic because you stood in my doorway and talked to me about this and then literally walked around the corner to your office. We're yep. now Zooming. So so we're just uh, Zooming from around the corner to each other. But I brought uh, Dr. Gilhooley on to talk about angels and demons. So he is the author of 40 Questions About Angels, Demons, and Spiritual Warfare with Kriegel in the 40 question series. And uh, we have many Arby dates, uh, dates at Arby's and other things like that where we talk about this. So I thought, why not uh, actually bring it to uh, video and let you actually be on record saying all the things that you say. So, (laughs) all right. So let's start with angels. Uh, What is an angel? What is the purpose of angels? What is their nature? Why do they exist? Where are they? All the kind of basic uh, foundational questions about what angels are. Yeah. Okay. So that's several different things. So let's just start with what an angel is. Uh, God made uh, rational and moral creatures, humans, uh, like you and me. Uh, and then he made an entirely different sort of creature, um, qualitatively different, a, a different kind called angels that are also rational, moral creatures. Um, and they, uh, they serve him or should uh, just as we should, just as we should. And so the, uh, what role do they play in the universe? We have a variety of things in scripture that, um, uh, you know, kind of establish the contours of what angels do and, and so forth. But what's unusual about angels, given kind of how much folklore and fascination there is with them is that they're really not major players in scripture. Hmm. So uh, they make appearances a lot. But the appearances are very often with this kind of assumed familiarity, or it'll say, and an angel did thus and so. Um, think about how many times there's a promise like, I'll send my angel before you, you know, to Moses or to the children of Israel. Um, and then what are they? What are they doing? And so forth is just sort of assumed. Um, when some a figure like uh, the devil appears, who's a, a kind of angel, um, he just appears. And they often will appear and then disappear. And there's not a kind of set text that's just sort of focused on them and explaining what they are. The closest we get to that is in the uh, Katina of citations to uh, Hebrew Bible and the book of Hebrews, where there's a comparison between the nature of the sun and the nature of these uh, angelic figures. And they are there described as ministering spirits. Mm-hmm. So there's some kind of a spiritual creature. In some ways, that means they're like us. Um, and they're ministering for the sake of those who inherit salvation. So that's that's good for us. Um, but otherwise, uh, they're off screen most of the time, except for a, a you know, handful of instances where they kind of appear for a specific purpose. And their purpose, we can see basically from the name they've been given. So in English, we have a word angel that is used primarily to refer to this class of creatures that are spiritual and that are depicted in art in various ways with robes and wings and that. Um, But in the biblical languages, there's not like a distinct technical word for angel. 
uh, the kind of default word that we will have translated as angel in Hebrew and in Greek and Aramaic too, is the word in those languages that means messenger. So the messenger um, idea kind of captures, uh, Gregory the Great says, um, a vocation, not a nature. Um, he wants to go so far as to say they're not angels when they're not delivering messages. Um, but uh, I don't know if I'd say that. But that's the word they're used to describe, um, that's used to describe them. And that's how we identify them. So when we come across one of these figures, an angel, and we're thinking about what are they, um, their kind of default way to think about it would be this angelic activity is the activity of messengers. They're bringing a, a word from God or interpreting a vision from God or making an important announcement about the birth of a child or things like that. Um, so they may do other things as well. But uh, primarily, they're characterized by their delivering of messages uh, on God's behalf. Okay, so another question that comes up is what they look like, right? So you have all these different descriptions. You have the cherubim, and you got the flaming swords, and you got the wings, and you got forty-six faces uh, in Revelation, and right. you know, you know what, whatever else you've got. You got all these different pictures of them. We also have obviously pictures in kind of modern pop culture of long blonde hair and wings and halos and all that. So. What do we do with the descriptions in scripture, how sort of different they are, anthropomorphism? Uh, we assume that they don't have bodies, unless you want to go into some sort of uh, metaphysics there about the, uh, the the body or non-body of an angel. But what do we do with all of those uh, depictions of trying to think through what do they actually look like? Yeah, so uh, it's helpful to remember that they're messengers. So when God is sending an angel to uh, speak to a human person, deliver a message, um, the angel is, uh, at least for that period of time, very often uh, assuming a body, which means that, you know, having control of a body in some way, but they're not naturally oriented or to like telically oriented toward the development of body because they're not bodily creatures, they're spirits. So if they appear in a dream or whatever, they appear in such a way that they can deliver a message and then they're, they're depicted in some way, the, the prophet or, or seer sees this creature. Um, and then when they're going to describe it in scripture, um, they, we get a bunch of different descriptions and it, it depends, it depends in some ways in terms of like what the creature is, the particular class of angel or whatever. So cherubim are described one way, seraphim are described another way. Mm -hmm. Generically, an angel is just described as a man to, I mean, to the extent that apparitions of angels for the person who's encountering them, not for the narrator of scripture, the prophetic or apostolic writer, but for the, the character in the story very often can't distinguish between an angel and a man. So um, you know, very famously, angels uh, in uh, go to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah uh, with Lot. And if you go look at those texts again, Genesis eighteen nineteen, what you'll find is that the first time they get called angel, that word for angel appears or messenger, um, is at the beginning of chapter nineteen. Hmm. And in eighteen, they've been talked about, and it's like, well, what, what are we? What are they? These men. Um, and then that Moses is, uh, you know, he'll cleverly go between saying angel and saying man. And there's this deliberate sort of ambiguity in their presentation. So when it comes to artistic representation of them, um, historically or otherwise, they're typically depicted um, with symbols that are associated with like the kind of activity they're engaged in. Um, so as a messenger, for example. Um, but early depictions of them are, they're men. Um, they may have wings or may to be depicted with wings uh, in some early art, um, second century. And that's typically because it's a, it's a characteristic way to try to describe them with the, you know, the symbols available that, they're, uh, that they serve the purpose of delivering a message. That's what's happening too in the kind of famous depictions that we get in 15th century forward in the Italian Renaissance. They take kind of a stock artistic image of the erotes or the puto, which is a basically a fat white child with wings, Arab <laughs> that we have. Yeah, um, and that had represented for Greco-Roman art um, the uh, like a god of love, like a Cupid. Where, where we get? Yeah, I was thinking of Cupid when you said that. Yeah, that's exactly what that is. So Cupid is one of these figures. That's the the kind of uh, image. And the idea is he has uh, the, the wings depict their height or how sublime they are. And, uh, and then they refer to this kind of uh, 
ability to deliver a message from heaven. Um, and so they get associated with those images and they're kind of uh, reinterpreted so that they're referencing these angels who deliver messages. And uh, that the notion of that, that now that particular artistic image, which comes from uh, you know, uh, developments in art, but that notion that their wings are not things they really have, but are depictions of their, how sublime they are. We have that in Chrysostom very early. He says, it's not as if they actually have wings, but how else will we depict that they are come from the height of heaven to deliver this, this sort of a message? So the characteristic characterizations and drawings that we see of the angel, the kind of typical, you know, chubby baby angel or whatever, um, that's kind of a stock image of Greco-Roman art that gets picked up in the Italian Renaissance, Christianized, and it comes to represent this, this idea of an angelic figure. Um, the other stock one, which is basically a lady, long blonde hair, big, you know, white robe, um, that's often just a misinterpretation of um, early medieval images. So uh, a lot of times that painting or drawing from relatively early, say ninth century or something like that, uh, is supposed to represent a young man on the uh, cusp of knighthood or on his vigil before he becomes a knight. And the way to showcase his uh, you know, purity or whatever, his chastity is to make him glow a bit. And the way to show his virility and his power is for him to have long hair like Samson. Hmm. So a lot of times what's happening is um, a modern person will see what is basically a stock image of an 18 year old knight is supposed to be very manly. Um, and, but think, oh, this is sort of womanish, right? <laughs> and, or, and this is a, it's a chant, therefore must, well, angels must be women, right? Or something like that. But they're never depicted as women in scripture. They're always depicted as men. Uh, and so we have to be somewhat careful to make sure that we're interpreting these symbols for like uh, whatever artistic uh, conceit is at play there and not, not in light of our kind of our assumptions about what an angel would actually look like. Yeah. I mean, we have to remember that, that you and I in our culture look like what a man's supposed to look like, you know, with beards and, and we're, we're real masculine. <laughs> right. Uh, but you know, back then it was different, you know, so we have to, we have to remember that now, if they were drawing angels, they might like make, uh, make them look like you and I, uh, for manhood yes. and virility, but yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah. In a pickup truck. So yeah, that's right. Um, but it is a, it's an interesting thing that we can, we can sort of see a depiction of them one way and then culturally, a new sort of image arises over time. That happened within Christendom too. Early Christian art is sort of limited because there's no political ascendancy. There's no freedom to create. There's no patrons that are paying you to make it a particular way. And so there's a lot more uh, kind of like looseness in the images just because people are doing it in an expedient way. You know, here's a fish. We're going to meet here. Yeah. Um, and after after there, this system of patronage develops, uh, in the first, you know, I don't know, sixth century, say, and then at when it, you know, we have a Renaissance, more than one, but when we have a Renaissance, then people are using the stock images that would be understood at the time. And um, they can, they're colored by the nature of the biblical narratives. Mm -hmm. um, and so the depiction of wings or an angel with wings, you have those kinds of descriptions about seraphim, for example. And, uh, and that, that then high ranking angels who are supposed to be close to God, they go, oh, maybe they're seraphim or maybe they're cherubim um, because the seraphim surround the throne of God. Mm -hmm. Someone like Gabriel, who brings this incredibly important announcement, um, you know, or, or speaks to Daniel, like he must be very high ranking. Well, probably he has wings then. And so the idea is these are, there's kind of like loose associations with particular stories in, in many cases. Uh, and then they kind of take a life on their own when they get drawn out. And what do we do? You're talking about the different types of angels or descriptions. What do we do with Michael, the great uh, archangel, the one who some even think uh, some uh, cultic religions say is Jesus himself, perhaps. So what do you do? Yeah. What do you do with Michael? Is, is he a unique angel? Is he something different than the others? How do you how do you work through some of some of that? So he's called archangel uh, and, and he's called the prince of this particular people, Daniel's people. And actually, it's captain usually. Um, but uh, Prince is kind of standard. So he is clearly assigned a specific role. But what exactly is that role? It's again, it's just a, it's just sort of stated with an assumed familiarity that there's these these angels who maybe have particular assignments. 
Um, I don't know that we can draw any general conclusions from that. But I will say this, the name Michael means who is like God. Hmm. So when someone says, you know, it's, this is, this is the son of God or something like that, that, I mean, you couldn't please anybody with that. Yeah, right. They fundamentally misunderstand the name, I think, mm-hmm. which is a, a, a setting a distance between Michael uh, and God, even though he's, he's very great. Um, he won't even dispute uh, over the body of Moses right? in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. But he waits for the time that God tells him in the future, and then he, he is the, the head of that army. Yeah, so maybe a particular army or a particular mission, but not perhaps he is the, the ruler of all angels and every other angel that's ever existed. We have no data to really be able to draw out something like that. No, it was very common um, in the, the uh, early church to try to figure out like a rank or a system for angels to understand their hierarchy. And we, there's some mischief by a guy, Pseudo-Dionysius, who at the time everybody just thought was Dionysius. Uh, from the Areopagus, um, who wrote a, a book uh, on the celestial hierarchy, and he basically ranks all the angels and all this sort of stuff. It's a, basically a Neoplatonic book or kind of assimilated Neoplatonist book. Very interesting. But people took it to have like a near apostolic weight because they thought that this was the Dionysius who knew Paul. Yeah. It turns out he's not that guy. <laughs> uh, and then... Uh, I think it was von Balthasar says like all of our angst about that is thrown into this this word pseudo. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the the idea that there's these ranks or these choirs of angels and that you know thrones are one thing and and principalities is a different sort of thing and then there's the archangels and there's the angels and there's seraphim and the cherubim we don't have anything that clear laid out for us. So I think you can talk about them as existing in different types having different roles and some specific named ones having specific roles, but just like their appearances and disappearances in scripture are very fleeting and quick and so forth. They're ephemeral and we don't have anything that concrete, Yeah, um, which is fitting with the, the kind of nature that they have. All right. So what do we do with guardian angels? That's one of the big questions that people ask. Uh, I'm going to suspect that you're going to say that we all have at least two or two guardian angels each. Yeah, that's right. why we're still here. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, I think there's some pretty early Christian traditions that, that, uh, give the impression that people have guardian angels, but not just that they have guardian angels. They also have like a bad angel, good angel. Yeah, on each shoulder or whatever. Right. And that, that you have that in Islam too. That's basically a way to try to give a illustration of the, the two ways. So you'll usually see that as like in Hermas associated with, with two ways uh, doctrines, but there really aren't any texts of scripture that could let you say there was a, a guardian angel. The closest thing you've got is Matthew 18.10. And um, I, I just don't think it should be read to say that we have guardian angels. And the sorts of the sorts of doctrines that have been built up around that, I think, are largely been uh, maybe sincere, well-intentioned pastoral attempts to comfort people. Mm-hmm. But you shouldn't be making people secure through the use of other creatures. Um, anybody who has uh, union with Christ through faith has the spirit of God. So an angel, I mean that, you know, I guess that's a nice friend or sidekick or something, but you wouldn't need, you wouldn't need that kind of protection. So um, it's an interesting one because we've seen different reactions, even in the reformers mm-hmm. to the question about the angels. Um, Calvin is very circumspect about this stuff. He says, you know, we shouldn't speculate beyond what scripture says, which wouldn't let us say very much about angels. But Luther is, by contrast, very superstitious, um, and uh, maybe maybe you know based on his experiences growing up and stuff, and the promises he made to God in light of his you know fear for his life and things. Um, so someone had challenged him on this idea of the angels because he says that the angels are they're always uh, around us to protect us um, because if we knew how frequently and how close the demons were to us, how hard and fast they were about us to destroy us, we would be paralyzed with fear. So that's why the scripture doesn't say more about it. Hmm. And someone challenged him on that. They said, well, but when it talks about the angels of the little ones in heaven, it says they're gazing at the face of their father in heaven. So how can they be around us? And his response is, well, they have very long arms. (laughs) So uh, I think even if we were to say that there was something like the idea of a guardian in that that passage. And by passage, I mean that verse. 
um, we couldn't build a doctrine out of it. You don't build a doctrine out of a verse. Yeah. Um, and it wouldn't be obvious at all that, um, that what was true about uh, a people in general meant everybody was assigned an angel. Um, that uh, we don't have any evidence of that. All right. Angel of the Lord. This is one you and I uh, agree on. Uh, perhaps athwart history and evangelicalism, because uh, most people, or at least a lot of people I know, sort of default to the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate son. This is Jesus, because we got to figure out what was Jesus doing before the incarnation. So angel of the Lord seems like, you know, a good place to go. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you and I both agree that this is uh, likely not the case. So why don't you talk through a little bit of the angel of the Lord, why you think that's not the pre-incarnate son and what you think is actually happening there. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I think we're often driven by this concern that the old Testament doesn't depict things in the way that the new Testament depicts things and that they're, you know, where is Jesus? What's he doing? This kind of stuff. And of course the answer to that is he's doing whatever God's doing. Cause he's God. Um, <laughs> so if you have a Trinitarian doctrine, I think that helps a lot. Um, but people will often see this figure of the angel of the Lord. And I, it, part of it is kind of, uh, some, some very popular, uh, theologians who have, uh, in American history, especially who've sort of articulated the idea of one self same angel that just appears in scripture in the, in the old Testament again and again, um, and part of it is the way that we have uh, a, a kind of a normal way that we would translate a Hebrew phrase as definitive with a the, T-H-E. Um, I think it's a bit misleading in certain cases. And so those two things together, they give us the idea that, uh, you know, here, here is this pre-incarnate. Now, you've been saying pre-incarnate son, but that's not typically what people say. People say pre-incarnate Christ. Yeah. Um, which is, uh, I don't like it all. A contradiction of terms. If you want to say... Uh, yeah, right. Because the Christ is the incarnate Son. Yeah. So you want to say like a uh, these these visions of or, or these are visions of God or something theophany or their logosophony or Christophany or, or whatever. Um, uh, we have to try to say first that it's true that this Hebrew phrase, the angel of the Lord, which is Malach Yahweh, uh, is going to be referring to one self same individual every time it appears. The angel of the Lord. So right. that one. Yeah. Right. So the, in English, if we say it with emphasis, is monadic. It means the one and only. Um, but that actually is not how the article works in Hebrew. Um, typically, if we translate a, a phrase like this, which in Hebrew is just two words, and the second word is somebody's name, then we'll translate it into English with the word the. Um, but it means the one I'm talking about. It doesn't mean the, the one and only, right? So there's a similar phrase that might help that, which is Ebed Yahweh, um, the servant of the Lord. And that's Moses, except for when it's Joshua, right? <laughs> it's this sort of title that refers to the, the one self same person. No, it's a title that refers to this person in this case. Uh, and there's another really good example of this, uh, which is in, it's going to be obscured a bit in the way that we do translation. Remember that the word we said earlier, Angel is not a distinct word in Hebrew. It's the word messenger. So if you look in Haggai in chapter 1, um, verse 13, Haggai is called in the Hebrew text, Malach Yahweh. But no one translates that the angel of the Lord. Yeah. Because he's clearly not an angel. He's God's messenger, the messenger of the Lord. So if it meant every time it appeared in the Bible, right, if it was a title for one specific individual, then you'd have to say that Haggai was the angel of the Lord, right? Pre-incarnate Haggai. Is that, is that right, <laughs> right. Which no one wants to say, right? Because it's that would be, uh, you know, that'd be a silly kind of conclusion to come to. So what we have to do is look at it in a case-by-case -case way and then try to say, okay, so, so what, who is that? And there have been a couple of ways people have tried to do it. One is a, a, what they call identification theory which is basically that the angel of the Lord is a theophany. It's a way that God shows himself. Um, and then another theory is uh, the, the theory, I, you know, I call it in my book, the Logos theory, which is what some people call pre-incarnate Christ, which that's very bad. But it's the idea that what you're seeing is a theophany, but in particular, an appearance of the sun. Mm -hmm. um, any argument that you had for theophany could be an argument for, this Logos theory, but you'd have to tell us why the sun, as opposed to just 
God. Yeah. Um, and uh, if we could make, uh, well, anyway, well, we maybe we revisit that. And then the other is a, uh, a another theory is representation, which is the theory that I think is right, which is that the angel of this Lord, this figure, is not the self same figure, but when that appears, it's an angel. It's one of God's angels. He's a legate of God, so he speaks on God's behalf. Um, there's actually another theory, which is uh, kind of, uh, it's called interpolation. And it's basically like, it used to just say God, but that embarrassed a prophet at some point. So they added something else in. But I think that the Bible is Christian scripture. So I reject that. Um, so the identification theory is usually picks some key examples and then tries to show that the angel is acting in such a way or saying such a thing that it would have to be God. So you'll have an angel using, um, you know, first person pronouns as if the angel is God, mm -hmm. something like that. And then this is supposed to demonstrate that the angel must really be God. Um, so, I mean, that's very common. So like the, uh, the burning bush is a good example of that. Yeah. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire from the middle of the bush. And he looked and look, right? The whole look. Uh, the bush is burning, but it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this sight. Why isn't the bush consumed? And the Lord saw that he turned aside to see. God called to him from the bush, right? Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Uh, and then you have, and he said, I am the God of fa your father, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face, afraid to look at God. So the idea is, okay, well, here's an angel appearing to him. Um, and then speaking in first-person pronouns and saying, like, I'm God. So it's got to be God, right? Um, what's interesting about that is Moses has decided to say, right, um, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Uh, as opposed to saying, like, the Lord appeared to him. Mm -hmm. That's not determinative, but that's interesting. The other thing I think that's a challenge with these this, this particular text and uh, other ones that are like it, is if there's any other place in Scripture where the event is understood or interpreted by a later writer or uh, like a later prophetic figure or in another book, what we find usually um, is that uh, it's understood in a different text not to uh, refer to God. Hmm. So Stephen doesn't take this text to be that he saw God. So I think we ought to go with Stephen's view. <laughs> the other thing is, there's plenty of instances in the Old Testament where someone speaks as if he were God without using any kind of an introductory formula, like thus says the Lord. This is a, it's not frequent, but it happens in the prophets um, often enough to not, to not be unusual. And no one is thinking, oh, uh, this prophet is now God. So most of the instances that we see that would support identification theory, they would just support the idea that it's an angel. Um, and I think this is a clear example of that, where Stephen, Stephen the martyr understands this to be an angel, hmm. is how he speaks about it. Um, and so I think there's really substantial objections to this. The, the, the theory that it's, that it's the sun, um, it, it might be able, people are trying to say, okay, how can somebody see God and live? Because he's not supposed to be able to see God and live. So that would hurt the theophany view, uh, except for there's frequent theophanies in the Pentateuch, for example. Um, how are we supposed to make sense of that? Um, maybe it's the sun, because we can see the sun. And also, uh, the sun could speak to God as God, which seems to happen in Zechariah. So, mm -hmm. help, Right. Um, but I think the challenge for this is and, uh, that you would have to think that he was the son in every particular instance, which we've already said won't work just grammatically, is not, not good. Um, and the, the real weakness here is that usually a firm plank in the idea that it's Jesus or the pre-incarnate Christ or the pre-incarnate son is that the word or phrase, Malak Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, stops appearing in the New Testament. So if in the Old Testament you had Jesus appearing as the angel of the Lord and the New Testament appears as the incarnate son, okay, that explains that. But the problem is it's just wrong that the Malak Yahweh doesn't appear in the New Testament. Um, the stock phrase for the angel of the Lord, Malak Yahweh, is reiterated in Greek. It's a Septuagintism. So you've got uh, a 
a phrase from the Greek Old Testament that's used in the New Testament. Um, and it's the same phrase for that Moloch Yahweh. So it's actually just false when people say that we don't see that. Every Greek grammar will point this out. Um, so in the New Testament, when you run across these instances um, of an angel of the Lord, right, it's referring to the same kind of creature that was referred to by the angel of the Lord phrase in the Old Testament. Now, what, where would some, uh, where would some uh, examples of that be in the New Testament? Um, yeah, uh, so you have in Acts um, 12, right? So this is well past the life, the life of Jesus, right? It's not like, it's well past the beginning of the New Testament. He's lived, he's died, he's resurrected, right? Uh, he's ascended. Um, you have an, an, an angel of the Lord, Angelos Kurio, which is not the right way to write it in Greek. So that's, what, that's our clue that it's a Septuagintism. It's copying this Old Testament way of referring to the angel of the Lord. Rescues Peter from prison. Mm-hmm. The angel that speaks to the women at the tomb is Angelos Kuria, angel of the Lord. No, but Jesus didn't just become an angel again for a minute, tell them that, and then go right. back to what he was doing. Right. right. The Logos didn't ascend bodily, pop out, <laughs> some like Nestorian nightmare, drop down, become an angel, speak, and then, right? Yeah. Um, and the, the, the message is, um, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Right. And in fact, uh, in Angelos Curio in Matthew one is what is who tells Joseph that he shouldn't be afraid to marry uh, to marry Mary. So the pre-incarnate word spoke to Joseph about the incarnate word. I mean, it's just it's a mess. So there's just no textual evidence that would support that. Um, And uh, so I think theophany would be the, you know, the best you could say. But in these instances uh, where people will claim theophany, there's usually a later text that's interpreting it saying it's not, or else there's nothing about the situation that's determinative in favor of theophany. Um, So I think angel of the Lord is a way to refer to an angel, and it could be a different angel every time for all we know from the the grammar. Yes, we've got heavenly host, which doesn't give us a number of how many uh, many come in and out. Myriad, myriad, meaning a lot. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's switch it to uh, demons and Satan. So, one of the common ideas that I think most of us believe is that Satan is a fallen angel. We don't get a lot of that from the biblical text. Obviously, there's not a text that says that per se, but there's some maybe insinuation or something like that. So, how do you talk through the nature of Satan? Who he is? Is he a fallen angel? How did he fall? Why did he fall? When did he fall? Uh, all that kind of stuff. Like like uh, work through some of those uh, those myriad issues, myriad yeah. of myriads. Yeah, speaking of myriads. Um, so the 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 devil is referred to in Matthew as the devil with in this phrase, the devil and his angels. So the, the conceptual link between the devil and, and the angelic host is is made apparent um uh, in, in phrases like that. So it's right to say that he's a fallen angel and that a demon is just a morally corrupt angel. That's what it is. So fallen angel just means demon. Um and demon or evil spirit sometimes is the phrase that gets used. Uh, it's just a fallen angel. That's what, that's what it is. So, uh, believe it or not, um, <laughs> the scripture doesn't talk as much about some of these questions of curiosity as we would like. Right. And there isn't anywhere in scripture, a record of the, uh, moral fall, uh, of the devil, um, or his angels. It is assumed with a kind of familiarity in a uh, implicit kind of story, but it's never a feature of the plot of the Bible. Um, so uh, we, the closest we have to a story about it is in John chapter 8. Right. And John eight forty four, uh, the devil stood not in the truth, being a murderer from the beginning. That's it. And so, like Augustine says, okay, well, if he didn't stand in the truth, he had to start there. So he stood there, but he was a murderer from the time he could be, and so he fell. And that's it. That That's the depiction that you have of it. There's something similar um, in Jude, the angels kept, that kept not their first estate, but abandoned it, mm-hmm. is the right way to take that, yeah. that verb. That's it. Um, now, what was it? what was it that caused this? Uh, when did it happen, and so on? We have to say something like the devil's uh, uh, fall, so to speak, moral fall, 
um, had to predate the temptation of the garden. Right. And that happens apparently very quickly after the week of creation. But that's all you could say. Yeah. Speculation, uh, particularly from Augustine forward, I mean, just was, you know, wild about how to try to make sense of this event, which is just not narrated. And the consequence of that, it's not being narrated, is that people have often looked to texts that really have nothing to do with it and tried to make them by association tell us something about it. Um, the closest thing we have to an identification of the sin of the devil is in 1 Timothy 3. And again, it's kind of an accidental thing. You have this language that you shouldn't let a recent convert or a novice in the faith, someone newly planted, become an elder because they could be uh, prideful, puffed up with conceit, and then they would fall into the condemnation of the devil. Mm-hmm. That can be taken according to the gloss, the grammar there, as the same condemnation as the devil, meaning the same one that he fell into. Um, and so that has led people to think, okay, maybe pride. Mm-hmm. He, he sinned through pride. And that happened, uh, that identification of pride was very early. It needed to be a sin that he could commit without having a body because remember the angels of spirits. So it has to be an intellectual kind of sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as people theorized on that, especially through the middle ages, it had to be a sin that you could commit in ideal circumstances without any kinds of uh, predispositions to do anything wrong. And pride fits the bill for that, um, that type of sin. So you could build all that up and say, uh, he must have been good in order for him to have fall, and his fall had to have been some sort of spiritual or non-physical predisposition or reaction, something like that, from That's a exactly couple of verses. Right. That's exactly right. So if you've got John eight forty four, you know that at some point in the remote past, uh, you know, prior to, uh, you know, very early in the week of creation, um, the devil fell through his own fault, um, and that moral fall. Uh, has made him an adversary of God's people. And that's what you can say about it. Um, there's a lot of questions of curiosity that are associated with that, which there've been, I mean, it's a fascinating historical topic, but scripturally there's just not much to go on beyond that. I was thinking too of, uh, of Luke chapter 10, whenever uh, the disciples come back from the unrepentant towns and they say, you know, look, even the demons submit to you. And he says, uh, look, I saw Satan fall like heaven from lightning. Uh, like lightning from heaven, and then he just disappears, and he just doesn't say anything else about it, basically. So what do you do with that passage? Well, there's some people think that uh, there's been kind of like a pause in the flow of the narrative, and so Jesus is referring to something he saw like way back when. Mm -hmm. And then they'll often attach that to something like Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28, neither of which has anything to do with the fall of the devil. I think you have to do really a disservice to those texts to make it talk about that. I blame Origen for that. Let's play more just for everything, right? Yeah, he did, he did a lot of interesting things, and I feel for a speculative theologian, that's an awful job to have, and to give it a first shot among our people and our tribe, that's very difficult. But and we both we both like Origin ultimately. We're, we're yeah, he did he did some real mischief on that particular thing, and then he he even corrupted Jerome. So <laughs> that's basically the reason those texts are misinterpreted to be about the devil. So that's one way to go at it. Another way is to say that the act that they're engaged in is like the fall of devil. And it's said in this kind of a hyperbolic way in light of what comes next, which is you shouldn't be so excited about that. You should mm-hmm. be excited that your name is written in the book of life. Yeah. Um, and then some people think that he it, it's a prefiguring of what will happen later when Satan actually falls from heaven, which is something that happens in this kind of tumult and tribulation that's described in the, the book of Revelation. Um, but it, it doesn't seem to me plausible at all that he's talking about something he saw a long time ago, in part because the devil, as depicted in scripture, um, is still able to be in the heavenlies. So when when Satan goes in Job to talk to God with these angels who have gathered, he's in heaven. <laughs> he's not mm-hmm. from anywhere, but he's clearly already wicked. He's the Satan, an adversary. Um, and likewise in the New Testament, in like Ephesians six, we're warring with these sprint principalities and powers of darkness, um, in the heavenlies. So that the idea is that, that he still had, can go where he wants, although he's characterized 
by in the book of Job and also by Peter as, you know, prowling around the earth. Mm -hmm. And for Peter in particular, seeking who he can devour. So this idea that he's been thrown from heaven, we have that kind of an image in Revelation when Michael casts him from heaven um, at the behest of God. But that seems to be an eschatological reality um, and not one that it, it is, uh, you know, post-dating, um, I mean, sorry, predating the, uh, the event that Jesus is talking about in Luke. Um, so, again, what are we doing? We don't have very much of a doctrine. It doesn't say very much. It doesn't focus on our questions the way that we would like to. And so then we end up aggrandizing a single verse, and it becomes this whole this whole thing. Uh, instead of saying, uh, you know, first we want to understand what did the author care about, and then from there we can say, well, what does this press us to ask or say? And in some cases, we're going to have to answer some of these questions with silence. Yeah, so some of the uh, couple of questions I was going to follow up with, you touched on right there at the end. Uh, the sort of traversing between heaven and earth that he seems to be able to do. You've got Job where he sort of is, now doesn't say he, he and God are sitting on chairs next to each other on, the, on a rocking chair in heaven. <laughs> yeah, they're but, not on a porch, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but there's a, there's a sense in which there's this interaction there that he is able to have while he also roams the earth. And then you've got the biblical descriptions of the prince of the power of the air, the principalities, mm -hmm. the way demons can tempt us and can uh, you know uh, appear as angels of light. And these different ways the Bible talks about uh, satanic power where he is, what he's doing. Uh, I always mention this to students. One of my favorite uh, phrases from Michael McKay, one of our colleagues here, is that uh, Satan's not omnipresent. You're not that important. So if you think that yes. every, every morning you wake up, Satan is waiting at your footsteps, uh, you know, think again. Uh, yeah, so, that's exactly right. So what do we do with it, with all of this? Uh, where Satan is, wh wh him coming to and fro, uh, demonic power, principalities, the authority he seems to have on earth. What do you do with all of those those kind of questions? Yeah, so a lot of that gets related to this uh, spiritual war warfare idea. And, um, you know, we have mentions of the fact that there is a devil, there are demons, um, they are bad, <laughs> they're, they're not for you, uh, and so on. But those are not the things that are depicted as the like the object of spiritual warfare by the New Testament. Largely, the thing that's depicted as the object of spiritual warfare is, is sinfulness. Um, and that's, first of all, a war with the flesh, which is a kind of a personal reality um, that, character, that should characterize all Christians in the, in the community of the, the church. Um, so the... Uh, the, the waging of these uh, warfare against these uh, demonic creatures or whatever, angels and powers and rulers and thrones and whatever else, um, is supposed to be based on what God's word has actually revealed to us and not just our own kind of, you know, wandering around in the world. But what's interesting about some of the terms that like Paul, for example, will choose to use uh, in uh, uh, rulers and thrones in Colossians, for example, Kyriotetis and Thronoi. These are Greek terms that could refer to like angels or they could just refer to kind of like in general human authority structures and so forth. Yeah, Caesar or whatever else. Exactly. So these sorts of phrases are often used in that they're ambiguous. And again, that's consistent with what we see about descriptions of angels in general. When, when it's said that the devil is the, uh, the power of the prince of the air or that he is the god of this age, uh, it's not describing any particular way that he does his work. And it's not describing him as like fundamentally separate in some way from the nature of the world. So John has set up for us the sin and the world and this enemy as these three kind of uh, sources of uh, temptation, difficulty, struggle, to travail for the Christian sin and so on. But the remedy for all of three of them in every one of these texts is the same which is allegiance to Christ and, and our obedience to his, uh, his law, the law of faith. So I don't think we have to spend a lot of time trying to figure out, um, was this the devil or was it just the general character of temperament of the world? The devil's prowling around seeking to devour people. Well, he does that largely in the New Testament, we see, not by like demonization or kinds of overt displays of occultism or something, but by false teaching and antichrists. Hmm. And Antichrist isn't just this scary guy from um, uh, uh, end times or whatever. 
it's this notion of a contrary way of thinking than to the apostolic and prophetic presentation of the son. So, um, you know, this idea of strongholds and all these other kinds of things that we have, they're always referring to somebody who's saying something false about the nature of Christ, like something contrary to what Paul says or contrary to what Peter or John says. Um, and so the Christian life is characterized as one of struggle, can be and depicted as one of struggle, particularly in Christian theology of the early church, over against the devil, competing sorts of kingdoms. Um, but the kingdom that he has is the kingdom of the world now, which Christ has already overcome. So when people are worried, oh, the devil's going to make me do this or that or, or whatever else, uh, it, it is right that you're very likely not important enough <laughs> for, for him to bother with you. Uh, and James can say, like, you're your own problem, right? Yeah, you don't get to blame him for your sin. Yeah, I mean, you're you're drawn astray by your own sinful desires. Oh my, okay. So I can't say the devil made me do it. Um, that is not that 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 undersells my ability through the spirit to avoid temptation. Mm-hmm. And it also undersells the weight of my own sinfulness. And the promise of the victory uh, in the Son um, applies to everybody who uh, has faith in union with Christ. All right, well, let's finish up here. You've sort of written a book on angels, demons, and spiritual warfare. You have throughout the last uh, 40 minutes or so said, here's all the scant evidence for what we can and can't say. So what would you say is the importance of angelology and maybe by extension, demonology? Uh, Why should we care about it? What are some things that actually affect uh, what we believe about the world, about God, about ourselves in light of the angels and demons that we can say, okay, there's a lot of things we can't say. Here's some foundational things we should say and why we should, why it's important. Yeah, so one thing is that angels uh, are really useful. Angelology is really useful if you want a useful thing. Um, For problematizing, a lot of dumb stuff people say about humans. (laughs) Um, So you're not just a a soul that happens to have a body. The hope of the New Testament is not that you'll die and go to heaven. The hope of the New Testament is for the resurrection of the body. Mm Mm-hmm. That's something you can have because you're a human and Christ died for humans. He didn't die for the angels. So the distinction between these sorts of creatures is important because it shapes the nature of uh, our understanding of God who comes in the person of a son, the person of the son, a man. So the idea is that, that, uh, you know, angels are this other sort of creature. Yeah, that's important. And then the idea is they're focused on this particular ministry and delight in this particular mission of the son um, to us. So, I mean, there's a kind of a thing. The other is if the more, you know, about angelology, demonology, and the more, you know, when you can say, yeah, we can't say that. I don't know about that. I'm not sure. It doesn't really say that, that kind of stuff. In some ways we're adding to knowledge there by taking away. It frees you from a kind of superstition. You could have people that are all, you know, very sober minded, you know, all this kind of stuff, got their Bible very robust and all this kind of thing. And then anything weird happens and then they, they become superstitious instantaneously. Like, (laughs) well, that's not how they work. (laughs) So uh, there's a, there's a kind of a comfort to be found in knowing we have to be aware of this great struggle and we don't just war against, you know, flesh and blood as Paul says, but our victory for that is uh, putting on Christ. That's what the whole armor of God is, is the Lord. So, I think it has those those sorts of functions also. Um, the last thing is, you know, why should we care about this kind of stuff if we can't say very much about it? Well, it, it, I get that a lot actually in class from people when they talk about eschatology. Why should I care about that? Well, uh, no matter how circumspect we have to be about some of our conclusions, the scriptures replete with references to the angels and the demons, mm-hmm. not the main storyline of scripture. Understanding them is not key to unlocking some new vision of what Christ is doing or something like that. But they're there. And if we're going to have a biblical theology, and I don't just mean like a theology of Mark or theology of of, uh, Peter or whatever, but like a a theology that's driven by the witness of the prophets and the apostles, then we're going to have to say something about the angels just in order to to have that um, consistent reverence for what they've chosen to talk about. And sometimes the text is going to press us to say things. We want to be able to do that well. And sometimes we're going to be pressed by our own curiosity to try to answer questions that are not answered. Mm -hmm. 
And, uh, so angels, I think in particular, because they're so ephemeral, because they appear and disappear with such rapidity, because there's not that much explicitly written about them, is an opportunity for us to practice a kind of theological humility. Um, and that doesn't mean being nervous about having strong convictions if you've come to you know, believe something about that, but it's to be willing to say in certain cases, I don't know, Moses doesn't say. Mm-hmm. No, David didn't say. I don't know, Peter didn't say. Um, as opposed to feeling the need to kind of fill in every gap of curiosity with some kind of speculative story or some other religion that we kind of try to you know, backfill into what we perceive as gaps in the witness. Um, so knowing more about it will prevent us from engaging in some of these, these dubious practices. Um, and I think it, uh, it reminds us of the, uh, the comfort that we have in the sun. Maybe, maybe one of the best things I've read about this in church history um, is from a, a very early, uh, well, I mean, an early medieval figure named Alcuin is a, uh, English, not writing in English, but an English from that Island. Um, a guy, and um, he does a, a series of questions, kind of a pseudo commentary on the book of Genesis. And it's very common in the late uh, patristic and early medieval, mid high medieval, late medieval period for commentaries on Genesis to stop at some point in the creation week and wax eloquent about angels and demons. Because hmm. Augustine did this, and every all, all five times he tried to handle Genesis and he could never get it to his satisfaction. Um, and so they'll do the same thing. They'll say, well, maybe the division of the day and the night is really the division of angels and demons or something like that, you know, and kind of go, go off in this way. But Alcuin doesn't do that. Somebody asks, how come there's no report about the creation of the angels in, in Moses' book? And his, he, he puts the question in there himself, right, so he can address it. But his address is blunt, but I think constructive. He says, because there's no salvation for them. Hmm. So his idea is this book that we have, uh, Moses's book is not just some kind of fable. It's the start of God's story of redemption for his people in the sun. And that's why he doesn't choose to talk about all this extraneous stuff. It's not that it's not important. It's not, that it's not, there's not truths about that and so on. It's because he wants the main thing to be the main thing. And I, I found that it's often easier to get a casual conversation going about angels and demons than it is to get a casual conversation going about soteriology. There's something odd there, I think. So, as I said, theological humility, the way it problematizes other things, it emphasizes our humanity, the unique role that we have in God's plan. I mean, I think these are things that that angelology can do for us. All right, well, that was helpful. Appreciate you taking some time to do it. As soon as I stop recording here, I'll just walk two feet uh, over to your office and we'll continue the conversation. Sounds good. All right, thanks.